0: Welcome to the Stock Legacy.
1: He is within us. He shares in the pain. We must not ask God to change his timetable
0: because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or well, think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter. John Stock was born on 27th of April 1921, and in this, the centenary year of his birth, we're meeting different people around the world who either knew him or who were influenced by him. Please join me, Mark Manor as month by month, we explore different aspects of the extraordinary life, ministry and legacy of Uncle John. Ted Schroeder is originally from New Zealand, but has worked and ministered in the United States since 1971, which is where his wife, Antoinette, is from. But he is, in fact, the last remaining member of a very select group of people. Curates at All Souls Langham Place in London, appointed by John Stott. He started in 1967, and it was while he was there that Michael Bourne was appointed as vicar in anticipation of him replacing Stott as rector in 1975. So naturally, I began by asking how Ted ended up being headhunted by Uncle John.
1: Well, uh, John was uh, aware of the fact that uh that the congregation at All Souls Leg Place was becoming more international and he needed someone from who was other than uh, public school, English, uh, Oxbridge uh, Mm -hmm. kind of staff members and uh, so he contacted me at Cranmer Hall in Durham. I had met him before and he had invited me to come to um, to All Souls, to stay for a week. And, uh, and then he wrote me a letter and uh, asked me whether I'd consider being his curate. And I guess I was his last curate, because during that time, uh, we went through the transition from him being rector uh, in name and practice to having Michael Bourne come on as vicar.
0: That was 1970.
1: Uh, 1970, yes. He and I uh, went up to uh, Holy Trinity Plant Manchester and, uh, and tried to persuade Michael to come on board, and we negotiated the terms, and Michael did, in fact, come on board as vicar and then became rector.
0: Well, we might come back to that, but um, um, I can tell that you obviously are not from Britain originally. You're a, a Kiwi. So what brought you to Britain? Um,
1: well, I became uh, committed to Christ in my local home church, Anglican Church, uh, through a mission in when I was 14, and uh, Corrie ten Boom and J Edwin Orr were doing a mission, and I had a wonderful evangelical rector. And after going to Canterbury University and graduating, I decided that if I was going to be ordained, that I needed to have a, an evangelical theological training. In there. And the Anglican theological colleges in New Zealand were liberal. Mm-hmm. So people would either go to uh, Australia or the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I decided to right. do.
0: So you went to Cranmer f- from then?
1: Yes, I looked at the options. And uh, at that time, Oxford and Cambridge, Ridley and and Wycliffe and so on were really not as evangelical as they are now, and uh, they had a much more biblical faculty at Durham.
0: So were you actually anticipating going back to New Zealand having got ordained, or did you think you might stay in the UK?
1: No, I was planning to go back to New Zealand, and uh, I had uh, saved enough money to pay for my first year at Durham, but then I ran out of money, and so I offered myself to the Church of England to get a scholarship, and uh, I had to serve in England anyway right. as a result of that. And so um, that's where I met my wife. Is from South Carolina, hmm. and at All Souls, so we went to the United States for a while, and I was still intending to go back to New Zealand, but we uh, we finally. Uh, decide to stay here.
0: Right. So that letter from Uncle John arrives. Was that a bolt from the blue?
1: Yes, that was most unusual. I uh, <laughs> told my friends I'd had this letter from John Stott offering me a job at All Souls and they didn't believe it. Uh, they thought I was uh, not his type. You know, everybody who went to All Souls at that time uh, spoke like John Stott and uh, acted like John Stott, and I was not that type.
0: Mm-hmm. So, were you intimidated at the thought?
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the word intimidate is natural to a New Zealander. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: um, but you were excited about it.
1: Yeah, that was a great opportunity, and uh, it really sort of changed my life in many ways and mm. uh, was a wonderful experience. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount.
0: You become a curate, and you're there, what, for six, seven years?
1: No, I was only there for four.
0: Okay. Uh, and in that, in that time, you see, Michael Bourne
1: took over. Right. And uh, I got married. So after four years, I decided to move on.
0: Yes. But before you got married, obviously, you lived in the rectory with the other curates, and um, that strikes me as potentially rather intense, uh, that was very
1: interesting. There were about four of us, uh, single men, in the rectory, and uh, John and a housekeeper, Margaret Chin, and uh, it was an interesting time. There was one other curate there, Michael Wilcock,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but the others were not. They were lay people.
0: Right. I and mean, what was life in the rectory like? I mean, did it did you feel um, sort of claustrophobic at all, or...? Not really. Uh, I, I was
1: enough of a uh, individualist, I guess, to make my own life. And then I had a college friend from New Zealand who came and joined us in the rectory. So there were two New Zealanders and there was a, 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 a Spaniard and a, <laughs> uh, an African and uh, a South African. Um, so we had quite a variety of people <laughs> with different personalities.
0: What, what is your memory of, of life in the house with Uncle John like? I mean, are there particular moments that, um, you know, s- stick in the mind?
1: Well, it was, uh, it was disciplined. And John, you know, uh, uh, lived a, a very closeted life at that time. And he would be in his study and Francis Whitehead was in the living room as the secretary Mm-hmm. And, um, John would be working, 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 working very rigorously, very tightly, uh, organized. And sometimes, uh, that was a problem and I would have to go and root him out of his study for meals. Hmm. Um, uh, he would put a sign on his door, do not disturb. And I ignored it and just got it and got him to come down and eat properly, uh, And he he was an intimidating presence to some people so that people were very deferential to him and we tried to disabuse him of that. Um, You know, at one point I had to say to him, now, John, when you come into the room or the dining room, everybody falls silent waiting for you to speak. And I said, some people were were intimidated by him. There's Mm -hmm. no doubt about it. I said, you know, that's not very helpful. Mm. So um, he and I got on very well, but uh, we would have to be very honest with one another.
0: How did he take that um, challenging? I mean, I guess he he probably wasn't used to it much.
1: No, he wasn't. um, And he was, people were deferential around him, but uh, I think that... um, we, we, we got to be good friends, mm. and, uh, you know, he, he would say that it was iron striking iron, and we, we uh, had some sparks together, but it was, it was a, a good and mm. honest friendship.
0: Mm. That lasted long after you worked there, obviously. He, yes.
1: Uh, well, he you know, he moved from the rectory into a muse flat at mm. the back when the Bournes arrived.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. and we had we had I'd gotten married and moved out of the rectory before then
0: do you think that John had a sense of that sparkiness and, and and that was why he appointed you because you know you were clearly someone from a different background and someone who might stand up to him a bit
1: yes I think so I I think he enjoyed you know I don't think he enjoyed the deference, really, that people gave to him. Uh, I think he was uh, looking... And he was not that old, you know. He was in his 40s when I went there. And uh, I left when he was 50. Hmm. So he was only 46 uh, when I went
0: there. Hmm. Why do you think people were deferential? Was that just the the, the era that people were to the vicar and that kind of thing, or...? Is there something about him? Yeah, well, it was the 1960s, and
1: uh, it was still a, a buttoned-up culture. I think there was a, a tremendous amount of of sense of class mm. that still existed. Yes. Doesn't exist anymore. But you know, at that time, it was uh, it was very much a um, um, a stratified society where you had very wealthy and aristocratic people and mm. uh, you had <laughs> interesting uh, rebels, but uh, it was it, it, it was a
0: different era
1: mm.
0: to now. Yes. I, I wonder, though, um, how you must have encountered that coming from New Zealand to begin with, and I guess encountering it in Durham a little bit, but then in London, did 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 that trouble you? Um, no, uh,
1: it's hard to think back to those days, I guess. But I remember when I was at Durham, uh, I questioned one of the examiners, uh, and uh, I felt that some they had marked my paper down mm-hmm. uh, too much, and uh, I asked for a recount. <laughs> and uh, I remember being summoned to Professor. Huey Turner's uh, lodge in uh, the Cathedral Close, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, he's saying, This is amazing that you should ask for a recount. <laughs> and uh, I said, Well, it was normal practice in New Zealand. Right. <laughs> the New Zealand culture was Jack is as good as his master. Mm-hmm. And the, the it was a very equalitarian society. And, Nobody could have take airs. in fact, it was the opposite. You know you may have heard of the tall copies copies yes. uh, syndrome where anybody who tried to be better than somebody else mm. was cut
0: down it 's largely forgotten now, but the 1960s was of course a turbulent time to be involved in Christian ministry. Ted was at the sharp end of things doing university student work in London. So with the Vietnam War and the Cold War going on in the background, all kinds of different challenges to the gospel were being presented. He especially remembers regular encounters with communist and Maoist students at the London colleges.
1: At that time we had in 1968, you know, all the student revolts Mm. and we had the uh, Prague Spring Mm -hmm. where Ducek allowed people to come out of Czechoslovakia and we housed a lot of Czechoslovakian students uh, at All Souls because we were they were wondering whether they would go back and never be able to get out again Mm. when the Warsaw Pact came into their country Mm. Um, or whether they should stay away but if they stayed out of Czechoslovakia they they couldn't go home or see their families again. Yes. Yes. So all that was going on.
0: Yes I mean uh, very, as you say, tumultuous, uh, extraordinary period. And I guess this is perhaps um, the important background to, um, I know it's described in Timothy Dudley Smith's biography of of John Stott, but you challenging him with his um, preaching application.
1: Yes, yes. There was that famous incident when he preached a sermon and we walked out together and I said to him, so what? Yeah. And uh, (laughs) that caused, uh, you know, quite a lot of uh, soul searching.
0: Do you remember what he said immediately after you asked it? (laughs) Uh, No, I think he he was a little
1: stunned Mm -hmm. and he was uh, struggling at that point because um, the early Uh, responses to his evangelistic preaching were not as fruitful Mm. and I can remember him coming home uh, to the rectory after a guest service one Sunday night and he was very depressed and discouraged and felt that there was uh, little response.
0: So compared to what, what he'd experienced say in the 50s with missions
1: Yes, yeah. Uh, people were becoming more uh, hardened, I think, to the gospel, and, uh, or at least to his way of presenting at, at that time.
0: What do you think were the hallmarks of that presentation then at the time? I mean, what, what do you think was not connecting with people? You
1: know, his approach was very rational, of course, very intellectual, and... Uh, Uh, He, he, you know, was speaking out of his own experience and his own convictions, Mm -hmm. uh, but he was not necessarily understanding where a lot of the culture was going at that
0: point. So perhaps was he still reflecting a kind of post-war Britain um, that he instinctively knew and hadn't sort of moved with where the new students were?
1: Yes, well, remember, he was so heavily influenced by Bash Nash Mm -hmm. and uh, the whole VPS movement at that point. And uh, and so his contacts with people who were different from that was was not as great. And he was speaking out of his own experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he had to sort of start listening. And that's where, Mm -hmm. you know, we had our... Our, our talk about him not listening mm. to people and not listening to the questions behind the questions. Right. You know, he we would have a, uh, he had a Timothy Fellowship, which was for people who were considering going into the ministry, students, and uh, they would ask him questions and he would give them answers. But he wasn't really thinking of what was the motivation for the question, what was behind the question that why would they ask that
0: question Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. and uh, so you know i was saying to him you know we need to uh, listen to where people are coming from Mm.
0: and once you'd made that challenge um were you involved in the process of helping him to find new voices to listen to i mean did you sit down and talk through knotty questions for instance or how did that work? Well he was starting of course
1: to travel more Mm. and he was going to the United States, he was going to Australia, uh, he was going to the third world and uh, that opened his eyes to a lot of different uh, backgrounds and different groups of people so he was taken out of the immediate culture of the English uh, Mm. public school background uh, and that that was a tremendously challenging period for him as he was thinking about that.
0: Mm. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned 1968 because one of the things I picked up, particularly from his Latin American travels, and this led, of course, to um, the Latin presence at Lausanne, was, you know, the political turmoil of dictatorships and all of that stuff. I guess he'd never really engaged with that kind of thing in his preaching before.
1: No, he was uh, having to deal with, uh, you know, René Padilla Mm -hmm. and uh, Samuel Escobar and all of those people and uh, realizing that uh, the gospel as it is presented in the United Kingdom is not the same gospel as elsewhere in the world. And he was having to deal with communism, he was having to deal with uh, the Marxist liberation theology and um and poverty of course mm. and uh, which he had never experienced himself
0: indeed indeed um so even in the time you were there did you see or, or sense changes in his preaching uh yes uh
1: and i think he really took it seriously and uh he was doing of course uh his writing I encouraged him to write at that point he hadn't published too much and I said you're going to reach more people through your writing than you are through your speaking Mm. so you know the more that you can write and research uh, the better and he did uh, he did for instance the Sermon on the Mount studies and the Sermon on the Mount and that was extremely uh, powerful Mm. and he was influenced by Martin Luther King, hmm. um, and his sister Joy was a great uh, disciple of Martin Luther King.
0: Huh.
1: He, he really uh, took what was going on in the States with civil rights at that time. And remember, 1968 was also when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Indeed. and uh, that, I think, made a big impact upon him
0: that's interesting do you know how joy um got to um following luther king i mean what the connection there was well joy
1: was very left wing she (laughs) was uh i don't know whether she would have called herself a marxist or not but uh (laughs) she um she went to hear martin luther king when he spoke in london (laughs) and was extremely affected by him and uh and it was uh, she was uh you know joy was um mentally challenged shall we say um mm. she was not able to carry on a normal life she looked after her mother mm. and uh, she lived down and working at their farm at bullens mm. and so on we, we used to go down there to see her and uh he mm. would take me with her and uh Antoinette and I met her and mm. she was a lovely person but she was rather scornful of of the um, uh, of of the political problems at that
0: time. Joy Stott was the younger of John's two older sisters and only a year or so separated them so much so that they were often mistaken for twins when they were young but for much of her life Joyce struggled with her mental health and she spent many years looking after her widowed mother, and then aunt. And in the decade or so after they both died, she really struggled. She was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. And in 1979, while John was on a trip to the States, he received word from his older sister that Joy had taken an overdose. He rushed back, reaching the Derbyshire Hospital just in time to see her. She was conscious enough to recognise him, but wasn't able to have a conversation, and she died just a day or two later. There was an inquest, of course, because she died in hospital, and the coroner decided to record an open verdict rather than suicide because so often, as he said, the mentally ill take an overdose as a cry for help. But in the ongoing development of John's house on the Welsh cliffs, the Hookses, he added two new bedrooms and a bathroom, the larger of which he named after Joy, and the smaller bedroom after her much-loved and, in his words, totally undisciplined dog, Fanny. This was a cause of great sadness and pain to John and the rest of the family, of course, but it was something that he very rarely talked about. Coming back to Ted's account, as he describes, John was very careful to keep his political affiliations and convictions carefully concealed.
1: I don't know whether you know, the only newspaper that John read was the Manchester Guardian mm. Weekly. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> he, uh, you know, he never, um, he never got involved politically in anything. I was a member of the Beau Group, uh, which was the, the sort of progressive think tank of the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was always interested in what we were doing, but um, he uh, he had an interesting relationship with his ma- member of parliament, mm-hmm. who was Quentin Hogg, ah. who became Lord Hailsham, mm-hmm. and he was the Lord Chancellor, and I invited uh, Quinton Hogg to come and speak at All Souls one Sunday night. Uh, before a general election. And uh, it was fascinating to see John's uh, uh, relationship to Quentin Hogg. Uh, he sort of uh, was amused, I think, by politicians. Mm. Um, he was a good friend of Michael Allison, who was a mm. conservative MP. Yes.
0: Um,
1: so he had a wide range of contacts, but. He uh, he would never come out with a political uh, mm. involvement or statement, which uh,
0: mm.
1: is... Uh, it, it, he would be amused, I think, by uh, some of his disciples who uh, have become political activists. Uh, he would never have done that.
0: But I, I read somewhere that he unusually for many, became more left-wing the older he got. Do you think that's fair? I do not think it's
1: fair. I think that uh, uh, he was very careful, and if you read his books on preaching and so on, he was Mm. very careful in how he dealt with political issues. Mm. And he said, you've got to be very, very careful not to think that you have the right answer, as it were, to some of those political problems when people in your congregation may differ from you. Mm. And uh, he never blamed other people for the world's problems, but um, he he really concentrated on uh, the sinfulness of humanity oh. and that we're all responsible for what is going on in our societies.
0: Mm.
1: And, uh, he didn't generalize about uh, mm. political positions
0: no. you mentioned the the question of listening and of course a phrase that he popularized um, was that of double listening um, do you remember when he started talking about that was that during your time or did that evolve later uh, that was during
1: my time and you know there's a i think he mentions it in his book, The Contemporary Christ- Christian, mm-hmm. that uh, we were having a staff meeting one morning and he wasn't listening. And yep. I challenged him about it. And, uh, you know, we, that became a feature mm-hmm. uh, of instead of trotting out superficial
0: mm-hmm.
1: answers to questions.
0: I mean, in a way, if... If you'd not done that, you'd not made those challenges, we wouldn't have had books like Issues Facing Christians Today and The Contemporary Christian, probably. Well,
1: maybe not. Maybe not. I think a lot of other people were challenging him
0: too. Right. And
1: it wasn't just me. I think that in, in his travels overseas, he was encountering all sorts of people.
0: After Ted's curacy of four years and newly married to Antoinette, The Schroders decided to move to the U.S. because Antoinette's father was seriously ill. In fact, he lived for another 10 years or so, by which time Ted and the family had settled and Ted had become a U.S. citizen. But I asked Ted whether he stayed in touch with John after leaving the U.K. and moving to the States. We kept in touch. The first
1: thing he asked me to do was to uh, establish the Langham Foundation in the United States. And so I became the first president of the uh, Langham Foundation and set that up uh, Mm. as a company, a a charitable institution Mm. in Chicago. Mm. And uh, uh, we kept in that. And then, of course, he came to visit. He preached for me uh, in Massachusetts and Florida and Mm. Texas. So we just kept in touch. And then uh, we would return to the UK uh, regularly and we would uh, go down to the Hooks's or, mm. or see him in London mm. um, many times. Mm.
0: You've uh, been working on a project in the last couple of years or so, um, looking at distilling his writing and thinking. Just t- tell us a bit about that, that project.
1: Well, I was aware of the fact that, you know, several biographies had come out on him. And uh, he. Uh, and as Timothy Dudley Smith said, uh, you know, there had been no systematic theology of John's teaching um, written. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, someone needs to do that. Mm. Someone needs to do a theology of John Stott. Mm. Uh, there were books coming out on Karl Barth and Emil Brunner and you know Jim Packer and all the others. Why not A theology of John Stott? So I raised that with the uh, with uh, Chris Wright and, and Mark Hunt and others, and said, you know, is anybody working on this? And they said that there was nobody to their knowledge, although Tim Chester was writing something on his Christian life, and you came out with. Uh, his preacher's notebook mm. and uh, and Christianity came out on his cornerstone articles in mm-hmm. Christianity Today but there was nothing comprehensive mm. and so I had recently retired and uh, three years ago and decided that I would devote my time to see what I could come up with mm. and so I decided to work uh, on re-reading everything that he, I could find that he had written, mm. which amounted to about 60 publications. And uh, it was uh, quite an eye-opener to me because I always benefited from his theological contribution, but uh, had not read everything that mm. he had written. So I, I did that and I took notes and decided to... Um, divided into topics and uh, that would be a help to preachers and Mm. teachers and lay people who were interested in him uh, to get a a, a total Mm. comprehensive understanding of his writings. Um, Mm. Now that it's done of course I can see that there are gaps and I wished I'd spent some more time on some of them but nevertheless i didn't want it to be overwhelming mm. and so it's it is a summary
0: sure but you you say it was eye opening what what particularly struck you he really
1: um, was thorough in his mm. treatment of subjects you know he he left very few stones unturned and he read the material he looked at all sides of the issues that he was dealing with he was very balanced in his interpretation and he was fair in his criticism of people that he disagreed with he had a courtesy uh with his interlocutors mm. i think yes. and uh and could be able to agree to disagree without being disagreeable uh, yes. and i think that's lacking in so many of recent writing about him that uh, Hmm. um, i think you know people have become much more critical of people that they disagree
0: with yes there isn't a generous spirit in 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 much supply these days it feels
1: yeah there's a tendency to be very self-righteous and condemnatory of people whom they blame Hmm. you know for being different from them i was uh, i think he would be amused by some recent criticism uh, uh, that came out with a, a book called living radical discipleship by a writer who said he narrowed the scope of the gospel and salvation
0: hmm.
1: and uh, that he was that john was trapped he was theologically imprisoned hmm. in his cultural conditioning uh,
0: <laughs> Which is the last thing I would say about him, I would have thought
1: Yes, but that, uh, that came out recently huh. And, you know, all of us are creatures of our of origins course. We all have our perspectives uh, conditioned by our upbringing and privilege
0: Of course, yes I mean, but I think that one of the remarkable things is how willing he was to to subvert his own culture?
1: Yes. Well, he was very aware of his own sinfulness. And, uh, you know, his the contrite spirit that he had uh, was, to me, uh, a little bit over the top, but I think that he, uh, he was very much humbled uh, by his his own selfishness and sinfulness that he acknowledged and um, he never had I think in a, a, a sort of a self-image that was that was uh, proud mm.
0: Mm. yes so in the years you've been in ministry in the states since um, can you see how your curacy at All Souls was formative I mean can you see how you did things Uh, or um, approaches that you had that were were shaped by your time with him? Well, he
1: always challenged me to take the scriptures seriously and to preach expositorily and uh, not to look for praise or popularity. And his understanding of salvation was was um, comprehensive it was not just a one-off deal Mm. Um, he emphasizes the cost of following christ Um, you know his well-known a b c and d of salvation admit you're a sinner believe in christ dying for you on the cross but consider the cost Mm. of commitment to christ before you make a decision Uh, that's Absent and a lot of evangelism in the states, you know, where people say, "Come and believe in Christ." You know, Christ is the answer. What's the question? Um, so he he helped me to uh, be um, honest. I think about the gospel and its cost,
0: mm.
1: and uh, and not seek to be self serving uh, to. Uh, People in the congregation, um, Mm. he would not want you to seek popularity for its own sake. Or, 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 you know, he was always concerned about church life and Christianity being a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm. And uh, if you're not willing to teach and uh, teach in depth, you weren't really living up to your responsibilities. Yes.
0: In summary then, um looking back, what what is the the thing you uh appreciate most or or love John f- for the most?
1: That's <laughs> a very hard question. I just think that his love for Christ and uh, the centrality of Christ in his life, you know, uh, the um prayer he used to pray before preaching you know you be your your written word, be your rule, your holy spirit, our teacher, your glory, our supreme concern that that was his his focus in preaching and teaching. and uh, I mention at the end of my book that he gave me an Aunt green Greek uh, concordance um, when I was ordained, and the quoted to timothy two fifteen, present yourself to god as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles mm. uh, the word of truth and i think that that uh, has been my mantra too mm. throughout my life
0: mm. wonderful well thank you so much it's been fascinating to to pick your brains a little bit and just to hear about those times, so I really appreciate the time you've given us. By the time you hear this, the season of Advent will have started, so perhaps you could pray for the different Langham teams across the world and across the three programmes of scholars, literature and preaching. Pray that in this traditional season of waiting and anticipation, we would all be casting our minds onto the promises of God and the hope that we have in Christ. Please pray that this would give us hope and confidence for all the works that God has prepared for us to walk in in the coming year. Thank you so much for listening to The Stock Legacy. Thank you also to my Langham Partnership colleagues who have helped to make this podcast a reality. And special thanks to Vic Marseille from Langham Partnership UK and Ireland for all her hard work in editing and producing each episode. Please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Recommend it to friends. And above all, tune in next time. Until then, goodbye.